is born, and his parents manage not only to keep him alive, but to have him raised as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Then at the age of 40, Moses commits murder and flees into the desert where he will spend the next 40 years of his life. With two-thirds of his life behind him, Moses has an unexpected encounter with God in the burning bush and is commanded to return to Egypt and to rescue God's people from Pharaoh and to bring them into the land of promise that God had given to Abraham. Moses reluctantly obeys and returns, but when Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, God sends 10 successive plagues upon the land, culminating in the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family, after which Pharaoh finally allows them to go. And that brings us to our reading this morning. After the Israelites have left, after the entire population has gone, leaving the Egyptian economy in ruins, Pharaoh has another change of heart and decides to pursue the Israelites into the desert. And the Israelites find themselves trapped between a powerful Egyptian army behind them and an impassable sea in front of them. And so naturally, they complain to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this why we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. That's not actually what happened. They did not say to Moses, leave us alone while they were in Egypt. Just the opposite. In Exodus 4, we read that when they heard that the Lord had visited the people and Israel and he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their head and worshipped. When they heard that God was going to rescue them out of slavery, they were in awe. They worshipped. They did not say to Moses, leave us alone. But now faced with death, it is at least understandable that they would complain and misremember what happened. But what's really disappointing about their complaining is not that they complained, but that they completely leave out God. They don't even blame God. They don't complain to Moses about God. It's like they've completely forgotten everything that God has done for them just a week ago in fleeing from generations upon generations of slavery. It's a complete forgetfulness and shows an utter lack of faith. Psychologists say that when faced with a threat, people do one of three things, flight, fight, or freeze. You meet a bear in the woods, what do you do? You can run, you can fight, or you're just so scared you can't do anything, you're just, just frozen there. The people have nowhere to go. They're trapped. They're completely outmatched for battle. They cannot fight the Egyptian army and their chariots. They can't run. There is an impassable sea in front of them. And so they're frozen in a desperate panic. 
But Moses offers them a fourth option. He tells them, fear not. Fear not because God will save them. Moses reminds them of God. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I think this is the best thing that we can do as a people of faith, and especially for those of us in leadership. Remind the people around you of God. When people forget about God, when people are frightened, remind them about God. Moses reassures them that God will fight for them and that they only need to be silent. He's telling them to be quiet, to stop complaining. And sometimes just standing still and being silent is the best that we can do. You know, this past Wednesday, uh, Pastor Ethan was leading us in prayer, and the first thing he made us do was to close our eyes and breathe. Right? Be silent. I found that such a helpful way to begin prayers. Instead of trying to blurt out everything I had to pray about, you know, this long list of people who have asked for prayers, who need prayer, to make sure I cover every single thing on my list. Instead, it's important just to sit, to be silent, to breathe, and enter into the presence of God, who knows all that we need to ask even before we utter a single word. Now, Moses tells the people that. But God responds to Moses in a word that is a bit unclear. But it seems to me that God is countermanding Moses' words. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Sometimes we need to stand still, but at other times we need to go forward. Moses told the people to stop complaining and to be silent. And it's like God is telling him, hey, then why are you complaining? Or are you trying to tell me to do something for the people? And you're just going to sit there and watch? Tell the people to go forward. It's, it's really a remarkable word. To go forward. Forward is the sea. Don't just stand and watch, move forward. God had earlier promised them to go to the promised land and there's no reason for them to stop just because there's an impassable sea in front of them. In fact, God led them in this direction. It's not like that they got lost. This is the direction, this is the path that God wants them to take. Go forward. I know you see the sea, but go forward. In the military, I understand that if communication gets cut off, you're supposed to follow the last command that you heard until you get new commands. If you feel stuck or aren't sure what to do, we ought to remember Christ's last command, make disciples of all nations. Or remember any of the last words you heard, 
Love your enemies. Pray without ceasing. Exercise your ministry of competence, like Joseph did, who did not hear a word from God during those 13 years that he was a slave and imprisoned. God's word for us always is to keep moving forward in obedience. Keep obeying God's word even when it's hard or frightening or seems impossible. You have to move forward because you cannot go back. You cannot go back into a life of slavery. A life of faith is difficult. It requires you to pursue holiness. It requires you to make difficult changes in your life. It makes you sacrifice certain cultural norms and expectations. But the other option is to go back to a life of slavery to sin. Tell the people to go forward. And as if to reassure Moses and the people, God tells them what's going to happen, and the angel who was leading them from the front moves to the back with this pillar of this cloud, this fire. It's just, I don't know what's going on, but there's darkness, and at the same time, there is light. And it keeps the two groups, the Egyptians and the, uh, the Israelites, separated. And then, while they are separated, Moses famously parts the Red Sea for the people to cross, and with the light behind them, and with only their shadows in front, the people walk across the dry land. I know that the parting of the Red Sea is perhaps the most memorable miracle in the Old Testament. Those of you of a certain age like me, you have had that scene forever etched in your imagination by Cecil, D, uh, Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Right? Moses stands on the cliff and he says, Behold the work of the Lord. And then the sea just splits wide open. Others of you of a different age, you may have had your imagination shaped by the DreamWorks animation, Prince of Egypt, where a far too young-looking Moses wades into the sea and he takes his staff and he, and he just jams the, uh, the sea and then it just explodes and, and, and separates. And perhaps a few of you may have had the image of Christian Bale as Moses simply picking a spot to cross this place looks kind of shallow, let's walk here, without any sort of miracle or dramatic parting or anything like that in the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. Perhaps in recent years you've heard that it wasn't really the Red Sea that the people crossed, but that it was the Sea of Reeds, or that it may have been some shallow marshes that the people crossed, or that it was just something like a tidal uh, movement which made the shores along one side dry for the people to cross or any other number of natural explanations. It is possible, I suppose, that God timed natural events to allow a rescue of his people. What others call coincidence or luck, we might interpret as providence. But in the case of the crossing of the Red Sea, that is not what the scriptures teach, and that is not how it was remembered 
In verse 16, God commands Moses to lift up your staff and stretch out your hands over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So Cecil D. DeMille got that part right. He stretched out his hands. He did not strike the waters as was done in the animation, nor did he just simply pick a spot that looked promising and shallow. But then in verse 21, it says this, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. It took all night. It was not instantaneous. All the movies got this wrong. And as for any possibility that this might have been some natural tidal recession, verse 22 and 29 says no. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There's no way to explain that other than to say that the seas were divided because if it's a, some sort of a tidal recession or something, you would only have a wall potentially on one side. The parting of a sea, the parting of a cup of water is hard to believe, right? It's, it's, an, it's impossible really to imagine. But if we begin with the acceptance of an all-powerful and loving God, then this miracle, like every other miracle, while difficult to imagine, is not impossible to believe. It's the same with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many good reasons to believe some of these things happen, these miracles. There are apologists and philosophers who try to present to us a, a argument of why this is more likely and possible. But ultimately, it does require faith. If everything could be explained fully, scientifically, naturally, faith would not be needed. It requires faith that those who bore witness to this moment are faithful in their witness to us and that their lives testify to the truth that they proclaim. And that's really all that we can do as well to bear witness to God's deliverance. Last week, I said that the presence of God was subtle. God's favor on Joseph was nothing really dramatic. It was just through the ordinary competency of his work. In today's reading, there's nothing subtle. God's presence and power in this rescue is undeniable. But I remind you that this is a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-human-history rescue that the people will remember and will retell for all generations. Later, when the people are in Babylonian exile, they will retell this story and they will anticipate their own return from exile in the language of this rescue. And this is what God does. God is recreating. He takes what is broken and rescues and recreates to bless the world once again.
It's hard not to hear the echoes of creation in this story. In creation, God's spirit or God's breath, wind, hovered over the waters. And now a wind from God once again drives the waters apart. There is light and darkness in the clouds and separation. There's the parting of the waters from the dry land. And there is this creation of a new humanity freed from slavery and into freedom. This is Israel's resurrection story. And as Christians, we might add, there is this baptismal imagery as well, that through the waters, people are saved. And I think we have to give the people some credit here. They move forward, right? It could not have been easy to walk between walls of water through a sea. But they move forward in obedience to God's word. So I think as a people of faith who believe in an almighty God, the more important question for us is not that, you know, how, how did this happen or how is this possible, but why this happened. On one level, we can say that, well, God did this because God wanted to rescue his people so that his promises to Abraham could be kept. He has to bring them to the promised land as he promised, and this was the only way. But a deeper answer is what God himself tells us. Verse 17, God says, And I will harden the hearts of Pharaoh, the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. You know, ultimately, this rescue is not about Israel's freedom. It's ultimately about God's glory. God did it for his glory. Even the Egyptian army, as they were drowning, gave witness to God. Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, I know that many modern readers are understandably uncomfortable with the destruction of the Egyptians as a means to bring God glory. There certainly ought to be reflection on our part to have sorrow for the soldiers who died because of the decisions of Pharaoh. But we must also recognize that Pharaoh represents a way of life that only led to death that he sought a return to an economic and political system of injustice, of exploitation, of oppression, of brutal slavery. And while we must mourn the loss of every life, we must also recognize God's opposition to systems of oppression. God's desire, as he tells us in Ezekiel 33, for example, is always for life, not death. As I live, says God, I do not wish for the death of the wicked, but for the wicked to repent of their way so that they may live. So that they may live. It was that life that Pharaoh opposed. This morning, I just want to reflect a little bit with you on the glory of God, or at least make a beginning of it. You know, throughout the scriptures, we, along with all of creation, are called to give God glory. 
Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 79, we are called to appeal to God for the sake of his glory. Help us, O God. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Help us so that your glory might be increased. Similarly, in Luke 2, at the birth announcement of Jesus, the angelic choir declares, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. In John 11, when Jesus unexpectedly and intentionally delays his visit to his sick friend Lazarus, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. Even illness and death can lead to God's glory. Why is God so concerned about receiving glory? Some have said that this makes God sound like an insecure egoist or a, a megalomaniac. Give me glory, give me glory. There have been people throughout the centuries who have said that this is one of the reasons that they cannot be a Christian or follow God. God just sounds like someone who just wants glory for himself. Certainly our motivation for glory can be characterized in these terms. In fact, I think you could easily argue that our lives, all of our lives, every one of us, is characterized by a pursuit of self-glory. I don't think any of you would phrase it necessarily in those terms, but just think about something like, like the popularity of social media. It's a wonderful tool to share your life and keep up with friends and family. Or, it's an opportunity to say, look at me, I am fabulous. My life is better than yours. Give me likes. I need more followers. Give me glory. Doesn't seem like much, right? It's a kind of a sad way to get glory, but that's what it's about. All of our striving and our boasting all of our desires to go to a good school, to have a good family, to have good kids, to have a good job, it's for our personal glory. Look at me, I've made it. I'm successful. I am deserving of glory. And sometimes not showing off, not saying all these things is a way to garner glory by saying, oh, look at me, I'm humble and I'm not boasting. Even if we don't do it on social media, we all curate our public personas to some degree to maximize our self-glory. Likewise, you get upset when someone you think is undeserving of success or gets credit because in your insecurity, their success diminishes your own glory. That's at the root of our living, all of us. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that it's always inappropriate to give praise. 
nor am I suggesting that we all strive for mediocrity and so therefore never be deserving of praise. It's just that at the root of so much of our living is this pursuit of self-glory, this self-love. St. Augustine identified this long ago. He said that we are driven because of sin by a misdirected or a misordered love. Instead of loving God first and others and then ourselves, we, we have placed ourselves at the top of the heap. This really was the, the first temptation that humanity faced with Adam and Eve, right? The desire to be like God, to place yourself, to love yourself, to receive the glory that only God has. You know, I, I can remember the first time um, I was a teaching assistant in school and, um, you know, I was so insecure because it was my first time um, and I, I prepared like crazy. And then in the, in the first few classes, you know, I would, I would talk super fast um, and um, I would tell them, I, I would tell the class things that I, I barely understood or had read just the night before as if I knew it all along. Um, because I had to prove to them, I had to show them that I knew more than they, they knew, which wasn't really the case, because I was so insecure about myself and I didn't want them to think that I was incompetent, right? So I, I, I had to just, you know, fake it. Um, that, that's a terrible teacher to have. That's a terrible teacher to have. Because a good teacher shouldn't be concerned about letting you know what they know to make sure you think, oh, this is a good teacher. Right? They, they should be thinking about not what I know, but what are you learning? What are you getting out of it? But that's our starting point. That's our starting point. We're looking for self-glory. How can I do what I'm doing so that people will think I'm competent? So that people will think, oh, this is good. That is not the starting point for God. And this is where we, we misattribute our desires to God and have a completely wrong conclusion. We are completely mistaken if we think that this is the starting point for God. God begins with perfection. God begins with perfection. God's glory is perfect from the starting point. It's not that God has, you know, Oh, I only have this much glory, but I'm God. I need more. No, God is perfect in his glory before creation, before any of us has to give him praise. God has nothing to prove to us. God is not limited in any way. Before all of creation, the triune God is perfect in his character and in his glory. He needs nothing from us to complete him. Right? For example, we say that God is love. This is the witness of scripture, that God is love. Well, what does that mean? Well, we understand that love requires an object to love. So that's why one of the conclusions, that that's why God must be in community, why God is triune. That God must have someone to love if God is love. And so St. Augustine, for example, talks about God is love, that God the Father is love, God the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love shared between them. That's one way of thinking about how, what does it mean when we say God is love. The lover, the beloved, and the love that is shared between them. 
it's not that God was lonely and was lacking that he needed to cre create people or anything like that. God is perfect in love. And, and what happens with love? When you love, the love goes outward, right? You, you love someone. And so that love, it, it cannot be just contained within yourself. And so the eternal love of God cannot be contained. And so it spreads out into space and time. And that's one way of perhaps thinking about why creation. The nature of love requires, demands objects of love. And I think it's the same way with God's glory. Because God is infinitely great, God is infinitely glorious, and that glory cannot be contained. It, it has to spill out. Like, like a fountain, it just, just overflows into space and time. You know, someone said to me about a month ago that they wanted to see uh, Novak Djokovic win the calendar Grand Slam in tennis because he wanted to see greatness. Right? He wanted to witness greatness. Now, whether you like him or not as a player or as a person, isn't that true? I mean, don't, don't you want to witness greatness? Isn't this why we watch sports, for example? To see people break records, to reach the highest levels of excellence. It inspires us. When someone does something that's never been done before, or when someone breaks a long-held record, or someone is considered the greatest ever at whatever it is that they do, we give them glory. The more difficult that accomplishment, the greater glory we give them. I know that sometimes, you know, the glory we give is reluctant. Um, I know, for example, many people consider uh, Tom Brady the greatest quarterback ever. Objectively, you can make that argument, but it's very hard for me as a long-suffering Bills fan to give him that glory. It's hard. It's kind of like sometimes when a preacher will ask Amen, and you kind of have to say amen because, you know, it's, you, feel bad, you feel rude if you don't. But sometimes when something is truly glorious, like you, you can't help yourself. You, you just blurt out praise because it is so worthy and deserving of glory. Sometimes even as Presbyterians in our well-ordered lives, the frozen chosen, even we have to blurt out, amen. Amen? amen. You see, there's my insecurity right there. <laughs> I know you all have had those kinds of experiences where you, you just stand up and shout and clap. And, and there's an almost selfish reason why we do this. Because when you experience something so awesome, praising it, makes your enjoyment of it even greater. C.S. Lewis said that the, the praising completes the enjoyment of that experience. When you see a, a beautiful sunset or a great movie or you enjoy a delicious meal, you have to tell somebody about it. Right? You don't eat a delicious meal and, think, and, and just remain, you know, quiet, like, oh, this is so good. Oh, I wish, you know, so-and-so could have it. 
that praising, that sharing, it makes your enjoyment complete. When we give God glory, when we praise God, we are not groveling. We are not stroking God's ego. We are not somehow reluctant, yeah, I guess I have to, otherwise he's going to, you know, punish me or something. That's not it at all. It's for our highest good to give God glory. It fulfills, it completes our enjoyment of God and of life. It leads to our highest good and joy. So when we come face to face with the greatness of God, such as Israelites did in the crossing of the Red Sea, or the disciples in the resurrection of Jesus, they could not help, and we should not be able to help, but to give God glory and to tell others about that. In contrast to Pharaoh, in contrast to our self-seeking of glory, we give God the glory because God alone is deserving of the glory. Right? If we had even an inkling of an understanding of the greatness of God, the infinite greatness of God, we could not stop praising God. God deserves our glory because God alone is worthy. That's their testimony to us. God kept his promise to Abraham, and one of the descendants of those God rescued that day will one day give birth to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God will most fully reveal himself to us. And in him, all will come to recognize the greatness of God's mercy and self-love, God's love. And therefore, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your rescue of your people and keeping your promise to bless all the families of the earth which you fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to recognize your greatness, your love, your power, your beauty, and to give you glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.